0: Hello. Today, a first for Health On The Line, I'm going outside the NHS, indeed outside the public sector, to speak to a leading figure in the pharmaceutical sector. Right now, as we face the Omicron variant of COVID-19, our collective safety largely relies on the efficacy of vaccines developed by pharma companies, and our future safety may rely on those companies staying ahead of the virus. More broadly, a crucial factor determining the future of healthcare is innovation in digital, in the use of data, and in biotech. Healthcare is also one of the fastest growing global marketplaces. But if the health service is to work effectively with pharma, it means partnership based on respect, understanding, and trust. And for business, that means reconciling commercial imperatives with the principles at the very heart of the NHS. New ideas. Big, Big debates. debates. Meeting the changemakers' transforming services. I'm Matthew Taylor, and this is Health on the Line, brought to you by the NHS Confederation. I'm delighted to be joined by Uday Bose, who's Country Managing Director and Head of Human Pharma at Boehringer Ingelheim, UK and Ireland. And also in November this year, Uday was elected Chair of the European Medicines Group, which is a voice for UK operations of continental European headquartered research-based pharmaceutical companies. So Uday, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Lovely to be here. So uh, Uday, someone outside the sector i'm going to ask some quite basic questions if that's okay but because it's kind of fascinating and other people may share my ignorance so so tell me how do you develop your research priorities
1: so i think most organizations take take a similar approach so what we do is um, we we call ours a disease map Um, so we look to the future um, and we're typically looking at um, all diseases, all disease areas, and we're trying to identify those areas where there isn't a genuine unmet need. Um, so, over the years, for example, diseases like diabetes, COPD, obviously, there's still things that we can do, but it's more incremental improvements. These are becoming diseases, somewhat chronic conditions. So, the opportunity to have a step change innovation um, is what we're really looking for. So, um, that's typically the the way that we define our research priorities so opportunities to to make a step change in terms of innovation um, and really bring value to to the healthcare
0: systems um, that we're partnering with but it must be a kind of quite a complex process because I would imagine that you've got a number of different issues first of all there's the kind of supply that is to say where does it look as though innovation is possible Where where is the science taking what, what looks as though what are the areas where there may be a breakthrough then you've got this question of well where is there a market because in the end you have to make money and you have to justify your investment in r&d and then thirdly there's this question of of need you know wh- where is it that you can most add value to people's lives by improving their health outcomes and all of those factors are kind of, I, I guess, bringing those factors together, getting them into balance. Is that is that part of the art of what you do? Absolutely. And so, yeah, no, it's, it's
1: incredibly complex. It takes, on average, about 10 years to go from a concept, so preclinical concept before you enter the lab, um, to bringing a medicine to a patient. So that's about a 10-year process. You have to screen thousands um, of molecules and make, you know, often minute iterations to that molecule to get it to the point where it's ready to, to be trialed. Of course, safety is incredibly important in our sector. So before we do trials um, um, in larger populations, obviously, there's a lot of um, work that needs to be done. And typically, after screening thousands of molecules, you, you get to one. As I said, it takes about 10 years. And the average cost, I think, at the moment, most recent estimates, is about 1.2 to 1.4 billion um. And it's, it's pretty much the same for whichever drug you're developing, because the rigor you take um, is, is very similar. So you're right, Matthew. It's, it's many different aspects. Increasingly, we are, you know early on talking to, to governments, to healthcare providers, and especially to patients to make sure that because if we're going to embark on a path like this, it's incredibly important. Um, that this is genuinely something that society needs, that patients can give us their insights in terms of what it really is like living with a disease like this so we can you know, produce that molecule, avoid those certain side effects and things um, to bring something of value to them as well.
0: There's been a lot of talk, uh, Ude, during the last two years about the scope to uh, accelerate the innovation cycle, particularly in relation to pharma, in the way that we've had to do with the vaccine. Um, do you think that, and we all pray that this won't be too long, that when COVID has passed, we'll return to those quite long lead-in times? Or is there real momentum, do you think, about saying, well, actually, we need to recalibrate the risks and the the risk of waiting a decade for an innovation um, has to be set against the risk that we might get things wrong? Do you think that debate w- will have changed as a consequence of COVID or, w- or will we just return to the, the way things were before? That's a great question, Matthew. I think
1: what we've what we've seen with the vaccine development is is what's possible. And I think for many of us in the industry, the regulators, governments, I think all of us, just assumed and accepted these things take a very long time. Um, I know, and you know, I've got friends who, who has, vaccine hesitancy is an important topic, and I, and I think it's important to listen and understand. And one of the common criticisms has been how quickly this has happened. How on earth could have this has been done so quickly? You must have missed steps you must have you know taken shortcuts and that that really wasn't the case of course longer term data is is helpful to have um, but the rigor can be done quicker that's what we've seen with the pandemic because what uniquely happened is everybody came together with that same priority and that same focus so we certainly as a sector and, and mhra here in the uk have been incredibly you know they've done some outstanding work and they've been very encouraging to industry to say you know let's engage early Um, And together, they've got something called ILAP, the Innovative innovative Licensing Access Pathway, which really encourages us to accelerate innovation.
0: So I I hosted an event for the CONFED around virtual care. And what was interesting to me is it's not just in the area of of the vaccine, of of pharma, that we've seen this acceleration. So we were hearing examples from India, uh, from Liverpool, of incredibly fast uh, implementation of forms of kind of telemedicine, virtual care, which was necessary because of infection control, and in all cases, the the clinicians that were speaking to us at this event had to recognise that they hadn't had time to evaluate this, and they were going to have to evaluate it post hoc. Um, so, you know, a- across the waterfront, it seems to me, there is a kind of sense of, well, how do we how do we accelerate things safely, and and, and I guess. One of the issues there is about transparency, which is that one of the ways you can accelerate innovation, one of the ways in which you can say, well, let's try things out and see whether they work, is to have a very open w- way of being able to see whether or not any problems are occurring and a very open way of looking at if something does go wrong, of learning from that, you know, in a way that people often talk about the airline industry and the black box and the way in which that has been so powerful for airline safety. But then you've got commercial imperatives, which is it's hard for a company competing in a marketplace to be entirely open about what they're doing and about what they're learning about their products. So how do we square that circle, Uday? So, you know, you touched on
1: digital earlier, and this is is one of the most exciting areas, I think, in terms of drug development, which is, you know, the use of artificial intelligence to, to almost institutionalize that learning. Because you're absolutely right. I think we're all guilty sometimes of reinventing things or not looking back um, to make sure we take those learnings. And, and in, in the area of drug development, where, as I said, it takes it does take quite some time, the opportunity to use data and, and machine learning to really predict um, potential pathways, predict, predict outcomes, um, means that I think we, we're getting much better um, in terms of using technology and science to, to accelerate innovation. So I think that rigor must, must be maintained. And, you know, we were talking earlier about... Um, you know, the safety of medicine. So, you know, we have, it's called the yellow card. The MHRA runs the program. Any side effect um, that you experience on a product um, has to be reported. We should report it as a society. We should report these things because this database is live and it's actively accessing information. And any signals that are picked up by the regulator, by the independent regulator um, are incredibly important and action is taken upon that. So there are safety Rails in place um, to protect patients, to protect society. Um, but as you say, I think using data to, to learn um, and to make sure we learn those lessons from the past is incredibly important. And more, and we're seeing more and more of that happening now, which is exciting.
0: So one of the things Uday, I've learned from conversations with with you and, and with other people in the sector, which which I didn't kind of grasp before, I think, was that I had a kind of view that 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 pharma companies develop drugs and then the health system bought the drugs. And and that was the kind of interface. And what I've realized is that is that pharma companies are, are actually much more engaged in the kind of wider question of the treatment pathway, the health system. Uh, so the context in which the drugs or the devices or whatever are being uh, uh, applied. And that, that's kind of very much your approach, isn't it? That, that it isn't just about, you know, flogging a drug. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean we've we've
1: we've realized quite some time ago now. And again, I think this, this our our ownership structure helps us because it's in our actual corporate ethos to to serve the communities within which we exist. So as a company that here exists here in the UK, um and in Ireland, it's not just about, you know, getting the product over from Germany and then selling it. We have to Literally, physically, it literally improve the environment within which we work. We need to partner with communities um, at all levels. And what we've recognized, and it, when you say it, it doesn't sound surprising at all, is that it's, you know, the medicine and the patient incredibly important, but it's the ecosystem around that patient um, that you need to address. Because pretty much all the time, the patient wants access to effective and safe treatments. The clinician wants to give it. So you have to understand actually what's, what's preventing that. And typically it's you know things around the pathway, it's things around um, identifying those patients in a timely manner and bringing them in or treating them remotely. It's, it's insights around that medicine prescription, which is actually critically important and often more important. I mean, it's more important for, for a patient to get diagnosed than it is to, to make sure the medicine's waiting for them at the end. You need to, you need to manage the whole system. Um, and, and that certainly is our approach.
0: And do you find when you want to have those conversations with health service partners around the whole kind of clinical pathway and that wider ecosystem, do you find suspicion? Do you find that health service managers and leaders say, well, hold on, you know, we how can we have that conversation with you? You just have a narrow commercial interest. Do, how do you kind of build trust to be involved in those wider conversations which see you as having a role that goes beyond uh, simply producing and selling a, a, a drug?
1: Yeah, it's it's a great question. And I think, um, you know, ag- again, there are lots of measures in place. We have a code of practice, the Association of the Rich Pharmaceutical Industry. Um, we, you know, we ha- we're we a self-regulated um, industry. So we have the, the MHRA. Um, but we put a lot of time and effort in terms of ensuring there's trust there. We're focused on system change rather than a prescription at the end. And again, from a compliance perspective, from an ethics perspective, this isn't about, um, let's get into a partnership to to prescribe more drug. The system doesn't need that. As I said earlier, the system needs to be able to better understand, for example, how how to identify those patients. Where are those patients? How can we get insights in terms of how the healthcare system is working? So, significant transparency on those agreements helps with with trust and I think it's um, and again we've seen this over the years the more you do the more you demonstrate the the more you build trust Um, and we're certainly seeing an acceleration in terms of our partnering um, because of some of the earlier programs we did and I think just just last year we won or just earlier this year we won an award with the um, with the HSJ for a partnership product with Oxfordshire which was very much around you know what was this what was a problem in Oxfordshire and their their feedback was, what we were observing was a significant number of um, AE admissions for poorly controlled patients with COPD and asthma, um, significant overuse to the national average of inhaled corticosteroids. Um, and they needed to understand why is this happening and how can we identify those patients? Um, and the project was literally about setting up an MDT, setting up a, and again, the company advice, company support, financial support, explicitly transparent in the agreement. Um, But it was literally helping them to mobilize, get access to that data and and do something meaningful. And it's it's led to improved outcomes. It's led to fewer admissions. It's improved patient outcomes. And it's um, something we're incredibly proud of with with Oxfordshire on that one.
0: This is all very positive, but yet still from time to time, there are things which give the pharmaceutical industry a bad name and possibly one of the most high profile has been the kind of um, opiate scandal I- in America. You're someone who has a leading voice in the sector and talks about corporate citizenship. What What is the the message that you give to your colleagues and to other pharma leaders about the principles that need to underlie the industry's approach?
1: So what I say, um, and, and for our organization and every single new employee that comes in, I have an opportunity to meet with them on, on day one. Um, And our simple approach, Matthew, is is literally to imagine there's a patient. So any conversation I'm having, like this interview with you, for example, I imagine there's a patient listening to us. Um, A healthcare professional, of course, is listening to us. And I want them to, what they hear, for them to feel very comfortable that, you know what, they they genuinely are thinking about me and what's good for society. Um, And they're doing the right thing. So that's kind of our, always our kind of benchmark. Just imagine the patient was there and is what you're saying um, balanced is what you're saying appropriate. Um, and in their interests. And if we do that, then I'm very confident that you know our intent is good, um, and we'll be we'll end up in the right place. So that's that's kind of the, the barometer we use.
0: Great. And I, I want to ask you about about the future. What we should probably see and hope to see over the next few years is an acceleration in preventative medicine, also in personalised medicine. So people having more capacity to monitor their health. And to have treatments which are particularly based around their own personal kind of their genetic profile, their own personal needs or whatever. Now, this is a future that we should all want. But one of the challenges of that future is how do you avoid it being a future where inequality grows even further? Because people who've got the kind of confidence, the skills, the resources to take advantage of these new possibilities push ahead and leave behind those um, who don't. So how, how do you think Uda, we get the very best of what the future offers us in terms of more preventative, more personalized health care? But how do we do that without exacerbating what are already pretty terrible health inequalities?
1: I, I think it's been said before, the pandemic really accentuated uh, and magnified inequalities. I mean, my um, wife's family, Bangladeshi, uh, you know, came over from Bangladesh. Bangladeshis are twice as likely to die from COVID. Um, than than white. You know, the the statistics are real. We are seeing this exacerbation of the inequalities um, up and down the country. And I think, you know, what we've done um, is, as I said before, we we connect, we speak to the patients, we really take a lot of time to understand the patient perspective. And we actually partnered with the the patient association uh, last year, because we were really keen to understand what's the patient perspective on exactly the question you just asked in terms of this digital transformation and this excitement and this opportunity. And and what patients told us through that survey was, yes, they are absolutely excited, um, but they want to be involved. Um, They feel things are happening to them, not with them. And they're not having the opportunity to shape things. Um, And there are many examples of, you know, digital technologies. And there was, you know, recent, I think earlier this year about the oximeters that measure um, oxygen in the blood, which are not, you know, now we realize it's not as sensitive to different skin tones. I mean, that's such a profound insight. And then if you look back into the trials, you you look, ethnic minorities tend to be underrepresented in trials. So they're, you know, overly impacted, but underrepresented. So we have to get to the root. And for us uh, as a sector, and certainly for us a BI, it's about connecting with the patient very, very early on, getting them to help create those solutions, rather than presenting them something at the end. And I think that would be the key to helping patients become more comfortable. Uh, and we're patients, you know, you and I, we, we, we all often forget that we're also patients. And I think we all agree that if I was involved in something earlier, my level of engagement would be higher. Um, and I think that's what we have to do more of, definitely.
0: Yeah, and indeed, it was the CONFED's own Race and Health Observatory which which raised some of those questions around the oximeters and and the the the, the oximetry and, and and its differential kind of um, efficacy for for different groups. So really, really important. Um, we've been talking a lot about the kind of pharma industry here, but what about? Messages coming the other way, in the sense of as someone who's been working with the health service, someone committed to innovation, someone committed to doing things in ways which align with the NHS's values. What do you think are the ways that the NHS needs to change if it's going to become better at innovation?
1: As I said, so I've been born and raised here in the UK, and I, I'm, you know, I'm so proud. There's so much pressure, especially right now. I mean, the incredible pressure the NHS is under, and I think they do an incredible job. and i I certainly have that comfort that the NHS is there for me, and it's something that I think we as a society hold very very precious but I, I think it's equally true um, that opportunities to be more efficient um, need need to be need to be taken up i mean'm as I say i'm a patient my mum's a patient you know calling up to get an appointment uh, appointments being cancelled there there is Work to be done, and I think you touched on it right at the beginning of this conversation, Matthew, about collaboration and partnership, because these are areas where we we need to work together to help each other. Um, And I think you know, digital and data, there's so much excitement around this. And again, we we did some work with innovators uh, a while ago, so innovators on the front line of the NHS, and um, through through a partnership project we're doing with Orca. Uh, We did a survey with them to understand, you know, how are you finding um, getting innovation into the front line? And this was the biggest topic that they had. You know, we did a a digital pioneers fellowship program with Digital Health London. Uh, We published the report, which is available, which basically said innovators did not know how to navigate the NHS with their good ideas. How, How on earth do you get a good idea to the patient? Um, so it, it's a complex system, so the, the guide that we produced in collaboration with the AHSNs and at that time NHSX really helps provide support for that navigation piece. And then once you're there, and, and it touches on the earlier topic around co-creation, so innovators are mindful that there are inequalities and they see they have a role. I think it was about um, 97%, almost 100% of the innovators felt that they have a role to address inequalities, which is great. Um but again, how do they do that? How do you engage patients? So again, that's where the, the Patient Association and the Fellowship um, and this Digital Health Academy that we've been working on as well. There are, there are lots of opportunities now, I think, for collaboration and t- to really help and support the navigation of the system to get innovation to the front line. Because that's I think if, if you ask me, that's probably the biggest challenge that we're facing. That, time to realize these innovations takes too long. And by its very nature, innovation has to move quickly, it has to get to the
0: front line as soon as we can get in there. And is scale part of this, Uda, in the sense that I I was on the, for two or three fascinating years, I was on the ethical board for Deep Mind Health before it was taken back into Google Health and uh, DeepMind was able to go to other parts of the world to HMOs in India or America and sign you know huge contracts which really justified a lot of expenditure in R&D and a lot of commitment to collaboration whereas you know in England they were having to try to win contracts with individual foundation trusts where the you know the economies are very very different it, 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 We're moving now to ICSs, and I think that, you know, I've talked to many system leaders, and they see kind of R&D and digital as one of those things which the system can add value in coordinating. Um, Do you think ICSs are going to be a good... Kind of scale for 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 companies like yours to work out, or are they still too small for for some of the bigger innovations? No, I, th- I think it's um,
1: for us. ICS is the, the closer we can get to the communities, the better. And I think the the promise, and from what I've seen in the, in the health and social care bill, I think the opportunity is absolutely there. We do a lot of work, for example, with with health innovation Manchester up in the north, which, as you know, Manchester's a devolved healthcare system, and it's it's certainly more joined up. Um, And it's a great place to to innovate, to test innovation, because I think we need that. And it's, again, one of your earlier questions in terms of trust and how do you build that trust? I think it's by, you know, working in a pilot situation to be able to test ideas. And so I I honestly, I do, I'm quite excited about the ICSs and think partnering is going to be a good opportunity. The the challenge, if I'm honest, from my perspective, and I think from a sector perspective is um, inconsistency. If, if every single ICS takes a different approach to, to simple what, what should be simple things like contracting for example that's going to be really difficult um, because the contracting can take up to a year which as, as i said earlier innovation won't last that long that idea isn't relevant in a year so i would i would just hope with the ICS is that that if if they're open for collaboration which i know they are i've heard that from uh, Amanda Pritchard and others that collaboration and partnership is key we just got to make that um, efficient. We've got to make sure that that process is quick. It's efficient. It's of course uh, rigorous and robust. Um, but that that certainly for me would be a KPI I would apply. Partnership's great to say it, but to realize that you've got to have the right mindset and the right approach um, to accelerate innovation.
0: And then finally, Uda, it's one of the cliches, isn't it, about technology and innovation that we tend to overestimate the change that will happen in the next year and underestimate the change that will happen over the next t- 10 years. So look into your crystal ball today, Tell me what you think is going to be different about the health service in 2031. And is it what people think is going to be different or, or, or do you have a, your own distinctive view of how things are going to be?
1: Yes, it, it's a difficult one. And we, we, we do this a lot. We're always trying to look, look ahead and trying to make sure that we're future proof and future ready. I think, you know, how, how society, how the world's reacted to, to COVID is going to, is going to leave a lasting impression on all of us, I think. And you, and you see this you know, playing out in terms of the vaccination campaign and the kind of faith people are putting in the vaccination campaign, and we all are hopeful, but we're also getting to a point where we're realizing we have to live, we have to live with this pandemic. And I think this experience will, I think, will last for people. Uh, and I think taking more ownership of their healthcare um, is definitely going to be a big feature of the future. I think it's going to be less of being told, this is what you need, and more of this is what I believe I need. I've done the research. I've got access to my own data. Um, I think there's going to be a lot more um, of patient ownership of the situation, um, which I personally I think is is only a good thing. I think informed patients are it's incredibly important that we each of us take accountability and I think our reliance on the healthcare service needs to be more responsible Um, and as I said earlier I'm a big fan of the NHS but I do think we as a society often need to be more empathetic I think to the healthcare system and so I would hope greater empathy, greater ownership of our health um, and of course greater transparency so that you know patients and and physicians and all of us can make more informed decisions.
0: Yeah no I I agree and I I think that the immediate challenge Uday is that we have seen this acceleration in the application of uh, of, of new um, vaccines we've seen the acceleration in virtual care we've seen the acceleration in in telemedicine uh, uh um hospital at home a whole variety of ways we've moved more quickly but yet we have a service that is completely exhausted and going through the toughest winter and somehow We've got to not lose the momentum that we've built up in terms of innovation and change uh, but uh, but be realistic about the fact that you know when we come out of this virus as we hope all hope we will or come out of the kind of worst stages of it people are gonna be very battered and bruised, and I think that 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 to kind of trying to sustain optimism is 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 really very very important in the period that we're we're coming into. Well, Uday, it's been really fantastic talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Take care.
1: You've been listening to Health on the Line from the NHS Confederation. Visit nhsconfed.org for more information about us and to register for events and webinars that delve deeper into the issues explored in this podcast. And save the date for NHS Confed Expo, the premier event in the health and care calendar, taking place on the 15th and 16th of June 2022 in Liverpool.